Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. It is November eighth, two thousand and twenty. This is episode ninety, and we are covering the top five comedies of the nineteen forties tonight. How do you feel about this genre, Frank? I think it's something that's probably mostly enjoyed by ninety-year-olds. So, <laughs> appropriate number for the episode. Um, I I don't. I really enjoyed watching or these five movies again, like a lot. Um, I think that these movies are more like droll. I don't know. Is that a good word for it? Yeah, sure. Like they're not really comedies in the sense that we think of comedies. Like I think that comedy was redefined, whatever, maybe in the the eighties more than anything, but probably the seventies. And like, this is, the comedy here comes from not like laugh out loud. Well, in some cases, I guess, yeah, but okay. in most cases, it's not like laugh out loud satire or wordplay or anything. It's mostly just the comedy of a awkward situation or a misunderstanding or I don't know. Right. Yeah, there's a little um, bit of slapstick thrown in some of them, and. There, some of them are really dark too. So yes. I don't know, like, yeah. I guess yeah, on that's, the, that's what I'm. That's what there was impressed upon me, like with some of them, is like how dark they like. Yeah. Were. I mean, they all kind of follow sort of disgusting characters, really, yes. mm-hmm. or have elements of like tactile danger to them. Sure. Um. I mean, I'd seen all five of these movies before, so I wasn't, like, surprised by what was happening in any of them. Which, I guess, I mean, that's true for any of our podcasts. Like, I'm not really ever watching anything for the first time, typically. Well, I mean, if I guess if you think about it, though, too, if you think about the time period, I mean, you have the rise of nationalism in the world around that time period. And either, like, the rise or, like, when it has happened or passed. I mean, so it's... In the number three movie, especially, that was really, um, really uncomfortable. Yeah. I think, especially during, like, what we're going through at present and, you know, before the election results, like, just that kind of ominous feeling that sort of existed, I think, among at least our group of friends from the one side of the aisle or whatever you want to say. Um, Like, it really felt like, I mean, there were some funny bits in that movie, but because slapstick will always make me laugh at times, like really well done mm-hmm. slapstick. Mm-hmm. But man, there were some times where I was like, "Holy shit!" Like this is really depressing and really bold. Anyway, we'll talk about that. Yeah, later. right. Yeah, but I just um. Well, I mean, you have noir in general is like the most famous thing out of the forties, right? Like you know, like that and the comedies. I would say like are the two things that it's probably remembered for, and it's like both are dark as hell. I guess like right. know, maybe that's just the world at the time. I mean. I mean, I understand it because you're both pre and post World War II, and then especially the stuff that was made like during America's involvement in the war. Um, not a lot of good feeling, really, in the. But I don't know. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Like they would have been making movies for people to feel good about, you know, people that weren't over there fighting, so they could have something. But I don't know. Right. Um. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed four out of five of these movies. One of them, I think I used to like a lot more 
the transfer I watched was really, really bad. I'll say that. So mm-hmm. I think that had an effect on my enjoyment of it. Um, but I did not enjoy it as much, although I still recognize like why it's an important movie. And at that point, it was too late to change the list anyway. So okay. but, um, but yeah, so looking forward to talking about three of these movies in particular that I thought were amazing. And I was really super impressed with again. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. And there was one, um, the Lady Eve, right? Which we've already talked about that probably would have made this list, I would think. Um, yeah, it, it would have. Honestly, the sad thing is it would have kicked off the movie I didn't enjoy, or it would have kicked off a movie I enjoyed just because of my like sort of hazier recollection. Because a lot of these movies I haven't seen in a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Blythe Spirit, I thought I would put on there. I think Blythe Spirit's a really good movie. Um, but I still like, I think these five movies are more important or more enjoyable than that. So I know the, I know the forties comedies, I think that everybody knows maybe. Right. Or at least like the ones that are super popular, not, not maybe not popular, but like well-renowned maybe. Um, I'm not really much into like the lesser known stuff from that time period because it's not really my bag like i know the big the broad strokes but not like the smaller like how i can like tell you about like a bunch of movies from the 70s that you know maybe would be new to you but if you know movies in the 40s like like, you know the same things i know so i don't know right I, I, i get what you're saying um There's a movie I was trying to think of from the 40s that like was pretty popular and I oh like stuff like it had uh like uh, what it happened on Fifth Avenue, right? Um uh-huh. that was the 1940s. Um yeah, there there's a much more like I, I mean I think our sense of humor is darker anyway. Um a lot of times like for comedies, but it's like some of these are those like happy go lucky. Um misunderstandings that don't have a dark edge to them like the, a lot of the comedies of the 40s like exactly what you're talking about like let's put something up on the screen that makes everybody like you know happy and cheerful like as yeah, opposed to make you feel good right um oh Sullivan's Travels was in the 40s too right that was another one that because yeah. we'd already talked about right. it yeah. can't really like what else about it I guess yeah for some reason I think that was 1950 that's all um Preston Sturgis Unfaithfully Yours is in the 40s, too, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yep, 48. Still, um, Google still remembers me looking that up at one point. Um, <clears throat> Google yeah, Sturgis, was the, Sturgis was the king of the 40s. Yeah. All right, you ready to get started, then? Do it. All right, there's two things I wanted to do. First, um, I just wanted to kind of go over our schedule a little bit. Um, We will uh, be uh, next week um, actually recording on a Saturday. Um, We'll be recording a third man episode with screenwriter and actor Jimmy Custis, um, who has the movie Body Swap out right now. Um, And related to that, the topic of the episode will be Frank and Jimmy's uh, favorite body swap movie. Um, so we got that to look forward to, and then we will be taking a week break, um, for Thanksgiving, 
and coming back and running through uh, at the end of November into December, the best movies of 1970, 1980, 1990, and 2000, uh, much like we did last year. So uh, with the years of 69, 79, 89, 99, which are in the archives. So um, we have that coming up special episode that we'll do at the end of the year. I've not fully decided, but I think we probably have an idea of what we're going to end up doing. Um, and uh, again, then we'll be starting a new year, which will include our hundredth episode um, in February, <clears throat> uh, which is crazy that we're actually crazy. going to have a hundred episodes. Um, so uh, there's that. The other thing I would just want to mention real quick is today we lost um, Alex Trebek. Um, to cancer, and uh, I think it's really sad um, because he's a cultural icon, um, or has become a cultural icon. Like pretty much everybody knows who Alex Trebek is, um, and but he was also a man who stood up for things like decency and knowledge and kindness and respect. You know. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something uh, we definitely need more of. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a sad loss. Um, and uh, one thing that's always forgotten about Trebek that like I always think about with Trebek is um, beyond, you know, just being the host of Jeopardy is uh, an episode of the X-Files. Uh, one of my favorite episode of the X-Files probably uh, where, uh, there's Men in Black and Jesse Ventura plays one of the Men in Black. And uh, everybody who sees the Men in Black claims that like, thinks they're crazy. And one of the reasons they think they're crazy is because you'll never believe who one of the Men in Black um, look like, you know? And, he, and the one of the Men in Black look like Alex Trebek, everybody claims. And there's a little cameo where Scully is recounting her running into the two Men in Black and, Alex Trebek has a cameo where he just comes on the screen in a close-up and puts his hand on her shoulder and says, you're feeling very sleepy. <laughs> um, and it's one of my like favorite cameos ever is um, the fact that possibly one of the men in black is, uh, is Alex Trebek. Um, but, um, but yeah, very sad um, to hear about that. Um, okay, so number five on your list is 1943's Heaven Can Wait. It is directed by Ernst. It's actually, I forgot to look his name up. Do you Lubitsch. Know? Lubitsch. Mm -hmm. um, and stars Don Amici, Gene Tierney, and Charles Coburn. It has an 85% from critics, 75% so from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. Want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why it's comedy? That's a, that's a pointed, pointed question. Editorializing it's, already. <laughs> it's a comedy in the same way that, like, all these movies are comedy. That, like, by our modern definition, it's not. But it's like a wry. I think, I think all the rest of them are comedies. I don't know. I didn't laugh at any of this shit. Um, what? <laughs> I'm just kidding. But yeah. most of it, I didn't laugh at. Um, it's a wry look at marriage and one of those really antiquated. All right, so the basic premise is this kid is born to this wealthy but clueless family where the only person that really has any kind of connection with reality or humanity is the grandfather. 
Um, the kid grows up to be sort of a womanizer and a cad, but he falls in love with this woman who's engaged to be married to his cousin, convinces her that he wants to settle down with her. So they run off together. And then 10 years later, they have a kid. She feels like he's still a womanizer. So she leaves him to go back to her parents, which he chases her down and wins her heart back. And then she ends up dying like 20 years later. And the bookend of the movie is that he's died finally and has directed himself to hell because he doesn't feel like he's ever done enough good in his life compared to his grandfather and to her to merit going to heaven and the devil basically convinces him that he's wrong and then he goes to heaven and she's there with his grandfather and it's a happy ending um i think it's a really charming movie in a lot of ways although again in a lot of ways it's got some really antiquated ideas of a woman's place and especially like the place of minorities particularly black people in culture um very uncomfortably like solidly set in the 40s um i don't know how early this is in terms of like technicolor releases but it's some pretty gorgeous fucking early technicolor mm-hmm. i agree with that like it um just the way that lubish and um uh kronjager the cinematographer, the way that they frame things and set things to really take advantage of colors and like deep textures and rich tones and stuff is just, um, it's pretty amazing looking. Um, I think that Don Amici is really good in it. Um, I think that um, I like uh, Gene Tierney a lot anyway. And I think that they're both, um, again, very firmly set in the 1940s in the way that they portray those characters, but I still think there's some charm to the two of them. Um, I don't know. I mean, again, like, it didn't, doesn't make you laugh, really. There's a couple of, like, chuckle moments, I guess. Um, but it's more just about, like, the comedy aspect is that it's supposed to make you laugh at the clueless cousin and the clueless parents you know and just the ribald audacity of the grandfather you know what I mean like those are things that probably would have been there's a lot of stuff that I think would have been really risque at the time in the 1940s like the idea of eloping and the idea that you know he's a womanizer that drinks and sleeps where presumably is like sleeping with women um, you know, that she tames him to be like a better man and a good father. And ultimately that like, you know, he's, he becomes like a really good man. Um, I love the dude that plays the devil. Like, I don't know who that guy is, but I think he's got like, sure. maybe, number one, he's fucking physically like imposing, like that's a giant man and just is like his pointy features and his like really combination of like human interests mixed with like bald like greed at the idea of like taking this guy's soul or whatever. Like I mean I know it's just a bit part in the movie, but it's pretty uh, pretty memorable. I love the way that they make his office look too like the big 
descending staircase with the bookshelves all around it. Yeah, okay. But yeah, I don't know. He he played he played Jack the Ripper um in the forty four version of the Lodger. Oh, well that's interesting. But he did a crash diet, but it's apparently um that crash diet also basically led to his death. <laughs> Oh, there's a night wake up screaming too, apparently. Yeah. Not to even worry about. Oh, yeah. I know him too from This Gun for Hire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny because his first movie was in 40. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he's, he's he's barely around before he dies from, um, I guess, two men, amphetamines to lose weight during that time period for um, the lodger. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, um, so I know that you don't really enjoy this movie that much. Um, I agree with you that it looks really nice, um, and I, th- I think it's well directed. I, I just I found nothing funny about it. I thought there were some clever lines, like in terms of dialogue and stuff like that. But I I don't think I get past the premise of what I was watching. I was waiting for it to be funny, and it just never became funny to me. Um, and I think it was just like. I was more horrified than anything that this could be considered a comedy for the time period. Right. But I um, feel that way about it. Like almost every other one of these movies, to be honest with you. So I don't Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is, you know, I, how I feel about is, comedy anyway. So this is yeah, kind of, I thought this was particularly egregious. I mean, this is a guy who sexually assaults a woman upon meeting her, steals her from his cousin, then continues to be a fucking piece of shit. Like until he decides that he doesn't want to anymore um well like i said it's got antiquated notions about yeah and it's like i'm not for i mean i'm glad he got the annex and everything i mean i'm not all for eternal punishment or anything like that but um yeah it was still pretty um still pretty horrified but i mean the less it is is like you can still get into heaven like after like being like a scumbag all your life like i mean okay cool you also be president right so (laughs) it's not um Let's not forget the lessons of modern life, right? Um, sure, sure. But yeah, I just did. I I didn't find this movie funny. Um, like in the least, like where I like laughed at all of these other movies at different points. Um, I, I didn't laugh at this once. I just didn't. I didn't get it. Like I got it from like a standpoint of like this was like a a cautionary tale drama, but it's like I didn't see it as a comedy. Like I was really confused. Like like just in general about like what this movie was trying to do like so let me ask because i want to ask you i'm gonna i'm we're gonna we're gonna reverse this a little bit so for the next movie i'll describe it but then you tell me how that movie's a fucking comedy how that movie's a comedy number four i hated that movie what yeah let's so let's 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 go okay um, so number four on your list is um, 1940s His Girl Friday, directed by Howard Hawks. It stars Cary Grant, Rosalind Russell, Ralph Bellamy. It has a 98% from critics and a 90% from audiences. Um, you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the movie, and I will tell you um, why it's a comedy. Sure. Yeah. I went into this movie. Th- this was this was the movie that it's been the longest since I've seen, and I was the most excited to watch again. Mm-hmm. because I always, whenever I think about Howard Hawks, I'm always like, oh man, I love Howard Hawks. You know, I love Cary Grant. Like, I was really excited to see the two of them, you know, like how Cary Grant, like, interplays, and like, I remembered like, the snappy dialogue, and mm-hmm. um, basically, uh, Hildy, played by Rosalind Russell, is this young, attractive journalist 
who's recently divorced um, Walter, played by Cary Grant, who's the hard-boiled like editor-in-chief of this newspaper. Um, to his dismay, because he didn't want to get divorced, but she felt like he was more in love with his job than he was with her, so she wanted to be treated well. So she divorces this man and gets engaged to the schlub, who's not even a schlub. He just isn't like an asshole. He's just a boring, so like, you know, yeah, yeah, right. Dude right. Who sells insurance? He's basically um, Richard Gilmore. Sure. So, Harry Grant doesn't want her to get married to this guy and basically tricks her into spending all this time with him through like investigating this story of this guy who's about to be executed for murder, um, but who may be innocent, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that's the movie. And they, the poor dude that just wants to love this woman and lead like a boring life gets thrown in jail like three times during the court. <laughs> um, see, see, I'm, already, I'm already laughing. <laughs> right, but it's like, I didn't find it funny. I don't know. Um, and not because like, I didn't find the situation to be like potentially like humorous. It just didn't make me laugh. Mm-hmm. I thought Cary Grant, and I like Cary Grant a lot usually. I thought Cary Grant was... A complete asshole in this movie. Like I didn't enjoy watching his performance. We're gonna have a fascinating conversation about about another movie then. Maybe I was just in a bad mood. I don't know. But like I just didn't enjoy watching it this time. And like I get the importance of it because number one, I think it's always impressive, especially because this movie is nineteen forty, right? Like so, yeah. right at the turn of the decade, to have a woman that even though ostensibly she got her position through I don't know sort of like almost like a sexual predatory type thing on Cary Grant's part um she still was really good at her job and she's really well respected and everybody likes her and thinks that she's good um and that she's like almost better than him in a lot of ways but I didn't like the interplay between them I felt like then you can't like that movie then yeah, I felt like, like yeah, the dialogue right. was really like tiresome. Like it just and again, I watched a really bad transfer of this movie. So number one, it looked like shit. Like mm. it, it looked like begotten, kind of, like in terms of the film, like the grain of the film. Right. Oh yeah, okay. Was this so on, it was, was this was this on Prime? I think so. Yeah, there's actually there I mean. there's two of them on Prime. If you search for them, um, there's the grainy one and there's one that's not as grainy. Well, I made the wrong choice. So I didn't search for non-grainy fucking His Girl Friday. Um, Right. So I just found it really tiresome and I was not into it like at all. And it was really disappointing because I really wanted to love it. And there were some things with the way that Hawks directed it, like with the timing of Especially the poor, like, put upon, um, what is he, like, news desk editor or whatever, the guy with the glasses. Right. Like, there was some stuff with that where, like, I wanted to laugh at it because, like, I thought the comedic timing was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and his reactions were really good, but it just never made me laugh. I don't know. And that's when I started thinking, like, man, maybe you just don't like comedy. Like, what's wrong with the like? And then the movie was over, so. I mean, so... 
I laugh at the. I, I think I think the dialogue is the the verbal banter um, is really clever. Sometimes it borders at times on for the time period very um, suggestive um, that happens throughout. And I like the idea. I mean, here's the thing: is like you already mentioned Richard Gilmore, and I think that's like one of the best comparisons to the modern day to some degree is the writing of the Paladinos. Um, which I think just basically steals from this entire time period of this kind of writing. Um, like these state, like, you know, stage plays of this time period that had like really like, you know, where people had to have a lot of verbal athleticism um, in order to deliver the dialogue, <clears throat> which I think Russell and Grant do perfectly in terms of their timing, like playing off of one another um, throughout this. And I think that timing to me actually adds to the comedy um because they're so well matched um in terms of their wit you know that um there it's a constant i mean it's a that what it comes down to is almost like a battle of the sexes but in a professional type setting right with this you know and it's like i think that they're both you said like you know about being good people i don't think either of them are great people i think i think that they're obsessed with their jobs i think she tried to pretend she wasn't obsessed with the job yeah, but only is a ruse to get him to be more obsessed with her than he was. Right. At the end, it doesn't even matter because he still doesn't give a shit. He still wants to go investigate the fucking. So, but so, but so does she. Oh, it's actually well, right. her. It's actually her coming around to realizing that the way that they can be together is that is through the profession. Um, and she tried, and and. And yeah, it's fucked up what happens to the um, the Bellamy character, um, the sad sack insurance salesman. Um, but at the same time, it's like I don't know. Like maybe I'm just a maybe I'm just an asshole because I thought all that shit. Like while I know it's terrible what's happening to him, I think also think it's really funny. Um, I think that his mother, his his mother, Bellamy's mother in the movie is such a damn um you know twit you know and and so unctuous that um i think anything that happens to her is really funny um i, right, I guess it, that's fine i don't know i just um i i but i i i like the dialogue in it it's very much like gilmore girls dialogue to me like that quick it's like it's like lorelei and christopher and like you said that it gets exhausting, it, it can. Um, I absolutely agree with you that it can. It, it would get exhausting with them sometimes. Um, right, agree. And, um, but I think there's enough physical comedy in this that kind of like breaks some of that up. I think there's enough other characters that kind of break up some of that because they actually don't share the screen for much of the movie together. It's the beginning some of the stuff on the phone and then the end, I think the dinner scene where the three of them go out to dinner, like her going yeah, to be husband yeah. Bellamy. I think that is one of the best comedy dinner scenes I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, like, and yeah, he's an asshole. Like Cary Grant's an asshole in this movie. Like um, just clowning the guy, like, you know, um, you know, but he also gets his comeuppance a little bit, like, you know, by like end up being forced into things. So it's like, it makes him pay a little bit for being an asshole, literally. Um, so 
Yeah, I don't know. Like I, 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 I find all that dialogue funny. I find the situations funny. Um, I actually find it funny that the characters are kind of not great people to some degree, but they're also good people. Like in the sense of like what they're trying to accomplish, even if it is for story. Like I mean, like they're they're on the side of right in this, um, and so it's like, um, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just I, enjoyed every other movie so much more, and I would say that like as a comedy, I enjoyed this movie. Third? Second? Third? Man, I don't know. I was not into it. So, if I would have had the time to change the list on you, I would have taken this movie off. <laughs> I'll just... Yeah, I mean, that's what, like, there's a, there's a guy here, Stephen, that I was reading, um, and I agree with him. It's kind of similar. Some, I just don't agree with what you're saying. This guy, Stephen Gradonis um, from Decent Films Guides, he, uh, he, um, because I, I had there's two percent of people like you know, uh, you know, had negative reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. But he said, um, despite the blistering dialogue and wacky plot, he says uh, it doesn't work on a crucial level for him. That I just don't care whether or not Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell wind up together, largely because neither character is particularly likable or sympathetic. Um, in fact, I think if anything, I think Russell might be better off Bellamy, and that's never a good thing. <laughs> um, so. I mean, he finds the characters like unlikable. Um, and I mean, I agree with that. Yeah, I think they are. Um, I don't think they're utterly unlikable, but I mean, I don't think they're likable people necessarily. But they're also they also belong together. Yeah, and I don't know that. Um, I mean, there's a lot of unlikable characters in the next three movies too. Sure. Well, maybe not in the first one, but in the at least at least the next two. No, there's one so, in the first one too. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it's just the forty. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, but I didn't find. I but I see. I could accept this one a little bit more, like in terms of because I thought with. I think she is treated well in this movie, like you said. Like I think the treatment of women in this movie is overall like better than most right, for the time a, period. She's an actual character and not an ornament or whatever. Right. Sure. And I like that. And I really like Rosalind Russell a lot. Like really good in it. I um yeah, I I, I actually like her like better than I do Carrie Grant in it. Um I um I I love her performance in this movie and um anything else I've seen her in, I really like her in. Like I think she's great. Um, and I actually I really like Ralph Bellamy in this movie. Like I love the performance. Yeah, I um, thought he was really good. Well I'm glad I put yeah. this movie on here so you can enjoy it. Yeah. No, um, no. Brandy and I watched it um, a couple weeks ago. And, uh, both really enjoyed it. Um, all right. So number three on your list is nineteen, another nineteen forty movie, The Great Dictator, directed and starring Charlie Champ Chaplin, and is also starring Paulette Goddard. It has a ninety three percent from critics and ninety five percent from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about this movie um, and why you have it on the list? Um. So it's sort of the tale of two chaplains in this movie. Um, he plays two characters. One is a um, kind of humble, poor Jewish soldier uh, who loses his memory saving um, 
suffers amnesia, I should say, not loses his memory, suffers amnesia, saving this captain um, in the war that his country ultimately loses. Um, the other, Charlie Chaplin, is a very, not even thinly veiled portrayal of Hitler, um, Hinky. Um, that's the fascist dictator of a country that wants to exterminate all of its Jews and believes in the supremacy of the Aryan race, even though um, Hinky himself is a dark haired, short, like non Aryan. Um, and then it's just basically a really uncomfortable look at the rise of fascism in a country. Um, punctuated by some scenes of like slapstick comedy with uh, Charlie, Ch Charlie Chaplin and um, some of the other actors. But for the most part, a really kind of dark meditation on how easy it is for people to dehumanize each other and kind of what it means to like fight against that. And before that anyone was even truly aware of like, like the abject horrors that were happening in Germany in terms of the concentration camps, because there's jokes about the concentration camps in this movie and how they need to send somebody there so they can get some exercise in the outdoors and whatnot. But um, really great performances by Chaplin as both the, um, uh, the protagonist and the antagonist. Um, some other really good supporting performances, particularly the guy that plays uh, the Benito Mussolini. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Parody. Yeah. Um, maybe the funniest scene in the movie, which is a food fight between the two of them over who's going to withdraw troops from the border first or sign the armistice first or whatever. Yeah. Um, some really good physical comedy, which I know like isn't everybody's thing, but it's one of the few things that I can always appreciate as somebody with like really good timing and like physical comedy <clears throat> and Chaplin's probably the master of that maybe of all time. Yeah. The, the, um, the scene to me is the one with the, you know, true, the soldiers um, trying to arrest him and oh, the, the frying yeah. pan scene. Like, yeah. Right. Like, yeah. That's really, really well done. Yeah. That there's the scene on the roof with him, um, like balancing on that really thin beam and like putting mm -hmm. down his valise and then putting down his other suitcase and, Right, having the bucket right. on his head. I, there's just a bunch of stuff where you can yeah. just a man's like absolute mastery of like his own physicality in order to like sell a bit. Yeah. Um, I think the movie looks beautiful the way mm -hmm. that it's filmed in black and white. Um, yeah. And that feels, that restoration that Criterion has done is 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 fantastic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Um, it's interesting to see a movie with him have actual dialogue and like a lot of dialogue. This was um, first. Like, yeah. It's, it's weird to hear his voice. I mm -hmm. think. Um, again, it feels really bold. And the message at the end is basically that people need to look inside their hearts and accept every human for who the other human is and not. It's basically the same speech that we heard Saturday night. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, that's probably like, I mean, not obviously not at all a comedic portion of it, but the final speech of that movie, which is goes on for what was just like six or seven minutes, yeah, it's a pretty long, long um, yeah. monologue, basically calling for the world to reject fascism and reject dictatorships and reject 
the idea that just because you are in a uniform that you have to accept the military solution to things. I mean, it's a really like strong appeal to um, the humanity of a people that, you know, ultimately would commit some of the most inhumane crimes like in the history of the world. Yes. Um, Chaplin has said afterwards, I guess, that if he'd have known what was happening in the concentration camps, he never would have made the movie. Right. Yes. Um, Yeah. But really, really, I mean, I understand that like it's a different world, but really bold to make that bald of a parody and mockery of a world leader. I mean, I cannot imagine like, well, what was that? Um, what was that movie that got banned in North Korea? Do you remember that a few years ago? Did Rogan um, and um, Franco make it? Maybe. Yes, they did. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it, but yeah, Bobby like they North they were rep- they were reporters, right? That right. Were, yeah, it's the one that starts with the Eminem bit, like that was like went viral, like where they're interviewing Eminem or something like that, and then they end up in North Korea. Yeah, I can't remember what it is, but yeah, yep, you're right. But similar there, you know, and that was a movie that in the modern world where you think that we're more adept or at least more like aligned with seeing that sort of thing gets banned basically outright and like this was a i mean i think this movie was nominated for a few academy awards maybe or maybe even won some academy awards um but yeah just a really brilliant movie a really jackie jack oakey is the name of the guy that um uh, mussolini mm-hmm. he's benzino napolini the Digadici. Um, of bacteria, which is just insulting, like so many different things there, but really funny and a really great performance. Yeah, I, I was, I'm so impressed, like with the delivery, because he, God, how long is that scene going? Like four or five minutes, where he, like, when the Hitler character is first introduced, and oh, where he's just sitting there, like. Making up viewing nonsense yes. German words, yeah, yes, it is hilarious. Like, I mean, as as like maybe it taps into some kind of like you know, I don't know, xenophobic thing in me or something like that, but it's like I because I don't know German, it sounds just close enough, but like the way he pitches his voice, oh, yeah, and, like the things he does in there are so hysterical. Like, I don't even, I don't even know why I laugh. It's there's so, but there's something he does with his voice that like does sing song things and like it, it's it, it kills me though every single time like I've seen this movie like four times or so and it kills me every single time. Yeah, um, he's um, it's 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 a it's an amazing performance. And 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 then of course the um, the globe scene, like is yeah, that's really funny, is, really is, well done. It was like yeah, so great and and at the same time to me it's the thing that also stands out as like the most horrifying in some ways right like right this guy is basically just like a like an immature child like playing boy and bouncing it off his butt like as he like rolls around Mm -hmm. on the desk i mean there's like i don't know right but to your point like you know i it's only in hindsight, right, is it like ballsy to do this with another world leader though, right? Because considering who Hitler became. Oh, right. Um, because it's like you wouldn't say the same thing about um Alec Baldwin, right? Except but that's for, our own that's our own world leader. I right? think that's different when it's when it's something like Saturday Night Live, which is 
TV parody, and it's parodying, right. like, it's an accepted, I mean, even though, you know, our world leader didn't take too kindly to it, it's an accepted tradition for them to, you know, right. mock the sitting president by having someone portray them in a comedic light. And we're not at war. Well, I mean, I guess we kind of were at war with ourselves. But, you know, if we were at war with another country and then we portrayed their president or their leader in a completely derogatory, derisive way, like, I I don't know. I think that's, I think that'd still be pretty bold. What about 30 Rock and Margaret Cho doing um, Kim Jong-il all those years ago? I, I think that that's really, so... That's a really, I, I I think there's some balls in that, but they also portray Kim Jong Il as like misunderstood kind of, right? Like yeah. he's just a wacky guy that wants to be friends with celebrity. Like he just wants to act and he just wants to direct, and he doesn't necessarily want to be like this evil world leader, you know. Right. He, once yeah, he, with right. Jenna Maroney in a TV show, like I don't, right. know. yeah, yeah, like that's all very gentle. Parody. Yeah, it is, yeah. Whereas um, this is like this guy is not only incompetent, but he's bloodthirsty and he's mm-hmm. malicious and he's duplicitous and he's definitely like willing to sacrifice. Yeah. I, I think the difference here then is 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 Chaplin doesn't necessarily, even though there's funny stuff, and he portrays him kind of as being a child almost. He doesn't soften him. To no, the point. there's no punches pulled. Right, right, yeah, like at all. Right. Um, so it's, um, it's pretty crazy. Like, how so much... what, what do you think the difference is nowadays? Because I, I haven't really thought about this, but like, what do you think the difference is nowadays from then, where you might. Do you think this is like a singular incident here? Like it's just like a one-time like chaplain just as the guy to like actually just scathingly like uh, like attack somebody like this? Or do you think we've lost that in some way over the years? I mean, how much, maybe? Like how much did people, um, how much did people in America really take Nazi Germany seriously? You know what I mean? Right. Like, does that make sense? It's just yeah. like, you know, we're... Well, you had collaborators here in this country, though. I mean, so I, a lot that went along with them, so... I don't know. I don't know what's changed. I don't know what's different. Yeah. I mean, this is this is pre-Hays Code, right? 1940? Yes. So nobody's really looking at this movie well, before. Or did that start in 39? Well, whatever, it's like early in it. If that's the yeah, end. right. And it's Charlie Chaplin who had a lot of cachet still, I think, at the time, where like he was a name and he might might have been able to like just get it done if that's what he wanted to do. Right. But um Yeah, this was yeah, this was Hayes Code. Hayes Code actually started in thirty. I mean, I don't know. Like, you don't really see anything exactly like this until maybe the seventies, right. when filmmakers are just doing whatever they right. want. Sure, which is actually, um, uh, oh, sorry, thirty-four, and and which makes sense because it ends in sixty-eight. I didn't realize Hayes Code went on that long. 
crazy. Yeah, but you can definitely see, like, this is the forerunner to a lot of things that came later in terms of, like, just the boldness. Like, sure. I almost hate to bring them up, but, you know, there's a lot of, um, you can see a lot of things that Woody Allen pulled from um, this movie specifically, but also just Chaplin in general with the way that he approached comedy and the way that he made films. So. Yeah. Yeah, there was not much. The, the only contemporary criticism that I found of um, of this movie was that it might be too much considering the subject matter. Um, like questioning like not questioning the quality of the film or the quality of performance or writing, but just that it was not the right time to do this. Um, what, in 1940? Yeah. Um, this is, that's contemporaneous? Yeah, there's a, couple, there's a couple reviewers that they, they, like, that basically, like, this is not a funny issue. Like, that basically people, maybe that were more keen to, like, what was happening, maybe, like, you know, where this is, this is, this is bad and sure um, and i i mean i'm not gonna lie like i kind of felt the same way like i can't believe but that's after the fact but there are people at the time period that were two years before us getting or, or yeah like almost right. two years before our involvement like you know we're kind of like yeah this isn't funny like um this is not the right time to be doing something like this um well how would you know you know yeah like, i yeah, completely yeah. understand that yeah. um so I, I did find, though, like somebody who had criticism contemporaneously that didn't have necessarily that criticism of it. And I thought it was an interesting point. It's a very kind of, I think, deeper philo like philosophical point. Um, but it's, it's a little obscure, like in the writing of it. So it's a, Franz Hollering um, from The Nation um, says that discussing the pudding scene and the palace scene, um, with uh, the the Mussolini stand-in and the Hitler stand-in, right. um, he's are so perfectly composed, most delicately balanced and rich in human understanding. The only trouble is that such perfect scenes as this are followed by more conventional passages, which would be funny enough in an average picture, but let one down in a film that deals so ambitiously with so great a theme. The same criticism applies to the palace sequences. Chaplin's script, I hasten to say. <clears throat> Uh, is one of the most ambitious and most original scripts ever written, yet it does not reach the heights. It is uneven, lacks coherence and sweep, and is in spots already slightly dated. The writer Chaplin is still primarily concerned with scenes for their actor Chaplin. He knows how to make his scenes serve the higher purpose to which he has set in choosing universal and controversial themes, but he sometimes asks too much of himself and as a result, gives his art and his admirers less than he could. What he needs most is a congenial author. And I thought that was a very deep, but still, like I said, like a little obscure criticism yeah. um, of, of like trying to separate writer and actor. Um, but I, what I took away from that is that the idea is Chaplin's Chaplin the 
Chaplin is a comedian and Chaplin is a dramatist. Like there's there's two different Chaplins, and we know this from his other movies as well. Like the stories have deeper meaning to them, you know. But he's also a physical comedian. Um, and the way I took that, like you know, reading that is that the is that Chaplin the comedian is a mark for himself, is how I took that, and writes things for himself as a comedian that ends up lessening the Chaplin the dramatist work, is how I took that quote when I read it. I mean, but don't you think that it's because Chaplin is trying to tackle a... <laughs> oh, bless me. Bless. Trying to tackle a, like a heady and really weighty topic, but still trying to appeal to the audience that knows who Charlie Chaplin is? Maybe. That's very possible. I mean, it makes sense. Um... It could be a case of trying to appeal to a specific audience while also imparting a different message to that specific audience. You know, I mean, um, that's very possible. Um, I just thought it was an interesting critique that wasn't the common one um, of the yeah, time that, that is that is interesting. Um, and I didn't really know the answer to it, but that makes sense. Um, that's a potential answer. All right. Anything else on this? No, I mean, I think it's just an important movie to watch. And Yeah, no, I agree. All right. Number two on your list is 1949's Kind Hearts and Coronets is directed by Roger Hammer. Robert Hammer stars Alec Guinness, Dennis Price, Valerie Hobson, Joan Greenwood. I couldn't read the typing. Um, is a 100% um, from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 94% from audiences. So you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you like it so much? So this is basically a serial killer movie. Mm -hmm. um, kind of disguised as a comedy of manners. Um, it follows uh, the Dennis Price character who is a... Um, oh, Louis Mazzini, uh, the heir of the Dascoin, um, dukedom, right? I guess earldom, whatever you would call that. Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember what exactly. It's the it's the duke. Yeah, but what is that called? Like, I guess it's a dukedom, right? Dukedom, yeah, dukedom. Sure. Um, his mother had fallen in love with an Italian uh, singer musician. Um, they had gotten married and fathered. Um, uh, Lewis, um, but had been disowned by her family, the uh, Dascoins, um, as a result. Um, so it's basically like a revenge story about a man like gaining vengeance on like all the members of his family for wronging his mother, um, which is a pretty dark premise. Mm -hmm. um, Alec Guinness plays <laughs> the majority of the members of the family that um it's like seven different roles or something right yeah maybe even more because he's the priest okay. Okay. anyway it's not nine it's a lot no, of you're right nine yeah um so he plays ethelred the duke then he plays the four younger brothers the reverend 
the general, the admiral, and the lord, the banker. Um, then he plays Lady Attica, the, the sister, right. and then he plays the nephews, the young Ascoy, and then the young Henry. Um, right. Um, anyway, so Lewis is undone by his lustful affection for um, his like childhood uh, paramour who ends up marrying a man who she feels is more um, financially suited to take care of her. Um, but then he ends up like kind of ruining the guy uh, through his machinations of going to work for his uncle um, at a lending house. And then his more like stayed, um, I don't know, mannerly love for the widow of one of the Dascoins that he murders. Um, and in the end, the the framing premise of this movie, which I guess a lot of movies from this time period really love, like the framing premise, mm -hmm. like the whatever, like the thing that starts the movie, and then you wrap back around to the end where you can reveal your yeah whatever your twist the, or your the, right the, the the letter the you know the sequence in like one setting that returns to that setting as the story is told yeah like they like bookends um. So the bookend here is that Dascoin has been writing his memoirs because he feels like he's going he's going to be executed in the morning and he feels like he wants to, I guess, sort of like confess, but also brag at like just the the beauty of his machinations. And then when he's pardoned, um he realizes he's left the manuscript behind and you were left with the impression that it'll be found and he'll be tried for all these murders and he didn't actually get away with the crimes. Um, anyway, um, brilliant performance by Price as uh, Lewis. Um, again, a really dark look at greed and like the lengths that someone's going to to not only get revenge but also better their social status. Um, really, the only I don't know if you would call it like sympathetic character is um, the lady Dascoin, um, the widow that he ends up falling in love with and Edith, yeah, that's Edith. Um, everyone else is just kind of a scumbag. Um, yes, yeah. Some of the some of the the Dascoin family are are fine. And yeah, the, ba the banker the the banker is not a bad man. The banker's fine. The the original husband of Edith is, is right. oh yeah, yeah, the photographer who likes yeah, to like to they could like to drink every once a, in a while. Have right? a drink once in a while, but uh -huh. not a bad guy. Right. Um well, well Lewis Lewis didn't think he was a bad guy either. It was unfortunate. Well no, but he's a he's a monster. <laughs> Serial killer. Yeah, right. Like, he's that's the joke. It's like he 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 really liked the guy, like, but it's <laughs> right. Oh yeah, he Lewis is one of the most <laughs> unsympathetic and monstrous characters like ever in a comedy role, I guess. Right. This is another movie where I don't know that I laugh at this movie at all. I laughed like, occasionally, like it was, it, but it's more like chuckles. It's, it's like the the laugh is a little like out of almost shock or derisiveness at right. times. Or like, you think like how clever that is. Right, sure. Like I'm impressed with how clever this was written or... It was more, a lot of times my laughter was like... <laughs> right. 
But yeah, um, yeah. I I love this movie though. I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's really good. Um, yeah. Had you never had you seen it before? No, no. So you told I me about years I... ago, but you, but I never like borrowed it or anything like that. Like, if, um, you, if you even have it, I don't know if you have it or not. Yeah, I do. I have it on DVD. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy like I, I think it's beautifully filmed. Um, I'm a sucker for the British, like the Ealing Studios um, of this era, like just the way that they film streets and tenements and interior scenes and like the gardens and stuff of like the wealthy of Britain, like all that mm-hmm. stuff is really appealing to me. And I think this movie does a really great job. Hamer does a great job of like capturing that look. Um, I think Christ is amazing in it, like as a villain, like he's um, just the perfect combination of like smarmy, condescending, charming, but also like whaley and just the fact that all these people are willing to like let him be that way because I don't know, like he worms his way into their confidence or they're gaining something from it. Mm-hmm. Um, really great feeling at the end, like when he gets his comeuppance. Um, it's one of the few times, like a lot of times, I feel in these movies where I want to see the villain succeed in a lot of ways, and mm-hmm. I don't know that I ever want to see Price. Um, I don't know if I want to see Lewis succeed in his, uh, you know, right. Like you want him to get his comeuppance, and then when he does, it's a, it's a pretty good. Movie. Right, right. I mean, the thing maybe is, not originally. Like initially, like maybe. initially, I think you're on his side, and then just slowly you turn on him more and more, and you want to see it. And at least I think they're they're aware of that, you know. I mean, because he does. Um, like you wouldn't give him the comeuppance if you didn't think he deserved it. So right, like. Um, so I think that was the point, is that, like, maybe you're on his side initially and you just slowly turn against him. Pretty crazy that Alec Guinness is that old, that he was, like, a full-grown man in 1940. Yeah, well, he was born in 1914. Um, um, it's funny, because I've actually never seen... No, that's not true. I've seen him in The Lady Killers, right? So, um... I'm trying to, like, I don't really know him as, like, comedic work from him, you know, and um, now he's still, like, no, there's there's just some straight comedy from work from him in this. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, point. he's a straight person, like, a straight guy a lot of times, like, in a lot of the different roles, but um, right. but there, there there's some definitely just straight comedic work, too. Um, but yeah, I, I know him more from like Bridge on the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia, Shivago, you know, like those kind of roles um, that he's had through the years, um, like the the Dickens stuff that he's done. Right. Like I've seen him in those kind of things. But um, I, I I guess the Lady Killer is the only other uh, comedic role that I've seen him in. Um, and uh, I thought he was fucking brilliant. Like I thought I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, it's a really good series of performances yeah and like making like the characters even though they're like not all great people but like making them very distinct and some of them very likable even in very human ways i think um and i think that's the thing is he imbues more humanity in some of those characters towards the end like the priest 
you know, like right, like hey, you wanna you wanna check out our celestry? Like, oh, I'm so proud of um Yeah, like the priest isn't yeah. a band. I think that's kind of the turning point, right? Like maybe even like well, there's the there's the it's like you okay, so there's the photographer, right? Who likes alcohol, like Edith's husband. Yeah, a guy that he's legitimately friends with. Right. And then it's like like even at that point, it's like, uh, but you still are kind of on his side, like right before then. Then, so it's like you're like, do I kind of want to see him succeed in this? And it's like, oh, that's that's really fucked up. But like, all these other people are worse, right? But then it's like, then you meet the reverend, and it's like he's a fool, well, right. but that, like and a drunkard, but but he's not a bad dude. He didn't do anything wrong, you know, except for being a little vain and you know and so yeah well, I, think that, I think that's the scene where he does it twice to a guy who doesn't deserve it that's when the turn happens right so it starts with people that are such cads right and that are not giving him the time of day like you know the first guy who he just sort of floats off down the river over the waterfall but even then he's murdering some innocent woman right right that he justifies by like, well, how innocent could she have been anyway? Right, right. Like hanging out with this dude. Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, you know, I don't know if that really is um Yeah, this is one of those ones though. I know it's a little later in the decade, but it was like it was like Jesus, like they were dark as fuck. Like, you know, like this is a dark movie. This is a dark movie. And like I was I was really pleased with it. I mean, it's like right up my alley in terms of comedy. Yeah, it's a really good movie. It's definitely worth um, seeking out and watching. Yeah. yeah. And, and 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 to that point, I dug for about 25 pages of audience reviews because this had 100% from critics, right? Yeah. And it had 94% from audiences. So every single three-star review, 25 pages into Rotten Tomatoes, they all liked it even on three-star reviews like they all liked yeah. it so i i couldn't find anything like I, I unless you're just not into like black and white movies or maybe it's too slow for your case like i don't know how you don't like this movie honestly. right right um i discount things that don't have any kind of th- anything to back them up so like i think there were some one-star reviews but they were just one-star reviews with nothing written so it's like i just discount those because what can I say? You know, it's like, what can I say? Like, yeah. Um, but I, but anything that had anything written, the lowest was a three star that I could, that I found, and um, they all liked it. You know, um, so yeah. Um, which I, is impressive. I don't know if I've seen that <laughs> so far. Like in terms of, uh, yeah, that is pretty impressive. In terms of this com- uh, this podcast, since I've been doing this research um, for two years. All right, so number one on your list is uh, 1944 Frank Capra-directed film Arsenic and Old Lace. It stars Cary Grant, Raymond Massey, Priscilla Lane, and Peter Lorre. has an 81% from critics, which is actually the lowest on this list, which is odd. Um, oh, and, then a, and then a 92% from audiences. Um, want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? Yeah, this is by far... Um the most entertaining of these movies to me. Mm-hmm. Like the one that I think is the most fun to watch and that I like to watch the most, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, 
basic premise is that uh, Cary Grant is a writer who's like famous for denouncing marriage. Um, kind of like a man's man type writer who ends up falling in love um, with the girl next door, um, marries her, uh, and then goes home to pack for the honeymoon while she's going to tell her father, um, but then finds out that his aunts that um, raised him um, are murdering gentlemen, like as a kindness, and basically using their psychotic brother who thinks that he's Teddy Roosevelt um, to bury them in their basement because he thinks he's burying victims of the Spanish flu. Um, situation is complicated by the return of uh, Mortimer Cary Grant's brother um, who's a criminal. Um, he has his alcoholic doctor accomplice in tow who has done plastic surgery on him to make him kind of look like Frankenstein, sort of. Um, what's the fucking Boris Karloff line? Uh, and there's a really funny line about Boris Karloff in it. Um, Mortimer is aghast because he thinks that like everyone in his family is crazy or a criminal, and there's no way that he can marry this like sweet, innocent woman if like he has these terrible genes. Um, so then it's just a... Uh, really like kind of a one I wouldn't want to call it like a one set like comedy but it really takes place like in the confines of this house where he's basically trying to get his brother arrested um and his uncle committed um which ends up like happening basically but um, and then he finds out in the end that he's not actually like blood relatives to these people, so he can marry his beloved and you know not run the risk of passing on some genetic insanity to him. Um, great performances all around. I think it's got some really like legitimately. This is a movie that makes me laugh out of all these movies. Um, like mm -hmm. I'm laughing, I'm thinking mm -hmm. about some mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. It's got great dialogue. It's got a beautiful. Um, like, it feels like a Halloween movie, if that makes sense. Like, the yes. way they filmed the yes. house. It was a great time filmed. to watch it, actually, like, a couple weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, the way they filmed the exteriors, just, it, mm -hmm. it, it feels like, like, you can feel, like, that chill in the air, and you can feel, like, the change of season, and it just looks beautiful. Um, it's got some really great performances, like, Cary Grant is fantastic in it. Um, Peter Laurie is really great in it. Uh, Massey is really great in it. Um, basically, like every character is spot on, and just the comedic timing is perfect, in my opinion. I don't know, like I love it. Like it's it's one of my favorite. Like I'll make a bold claim; it might be in my top fifty movies of all time. Hmm. Like I just, uh, I think it's pretty much just a, like a perfect, a perfect comedy. I think to me, yeah. I mean, I think this is the movie that I laughed at the most. Like, legitimately laughed. Probably followed by His Girl Friday. But, again, it's kind of laughter, some wittiness in His Girl Friday. This generally made me laugh, like, um, a lot. I mean, some of, the, some of the fucking lines in this are so goddamn good. Like, right. it's so, so good. 
like there's a there's a fucking point like where fucking Elaine tells him Mortimer, you're gonna love me for my mind too. And he tells her one thing at a time. <laughs> um, like there's that kind of stuff. Like there's the stuff like insanity runs in my family. It practically gallops. Like, right. uh, like there is just some shit in this movie that just like comes out of nowhere. It's just so good. Um, uh, and his facial expressions and his. Like his, his physical like presence in the role is is amazing and I don't know like I I like Frank Capra quite a bit like I think mm-hmm. he's a really talented um, director um, and I think this is like maybe my favorite movie of his mm-hmm. um, I again like. I'm Cary Grant is like hit or miss with me sometimes, but man, he's like perfect in this movie and just his reactions to stuff and his nervous, yeah, like I gotta fix everything, but mm-hmm. like incompetence kind of, right? Yeah, like that everyman vibe that is uh-huh. basically I, I, like really his bread and butter, sure. Um, yeah, no, I just, I really. Yeah. I just remembered another one. His the Doctor Einstein in it. Fucking Jonathan tells him, um, like something along the lines, like we need to go to work now. This is when they're gonna like kill um, Mortimer, and he's like, we need to go to work to now. And he says, no, Johnny, I can't operate without a drink. And he's like, pull yourself together. He says, I can't pull myself together without a drink. <laughs> 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 uh so good um yeah there's so much uh the cat like the recurring thing with the taxi driver like out there outside waiting for mortimer like and like just a little like um yeah like i you're right like grant i think is fantastic in this movie for that nervousness like that nervous energy that's just like constantly like coming out like um like i think the two women that play the answer magnificent like just in the, like the deadpan sweet delivery like that they have all the time um you know despite these monstrosities i think the teddy roosevelt thing is brilliant like especially all like the different like references to where he thinks they're different people like or they're he's told they're like people from teddy roosevelt's history and like um right like the fucking the fucking um God, what is that bit of dialogue? It's so clever. The 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 crow's belt, like yeah. trying to convince um, Teddy that Brewster is a code name, mm-hmm. like all mm-hmm. that stuff. I don't know. Yeah, it's some really brilliant shit. I would like to actually see this as a stage play. Like I think right. like as a stage play. Mm-hmm. I've only ever seen this adaptation of it. So right um yeah there, there's another adaptation that's later than this up on prime but i i didn't watch it or i never watched really? it and it's not really? short it's much shorter it's like an hour 23 minutes i think like that um so that is one thing okay so i mean i this is the second time i've watched this movie like i watched it in my early 20s on turner classic movies like, because I had heard good things about it, like, and I just watched it. Like, I recorded it on a fucking TiVo and watched it. 
um, and loved it. And I still love it to this day. Watching it a second time, though, I'm going to run a theory by you that's sacrilegious, and I'm going to completely like change elements of this movie. And let me let me tell you like why I'm saying this. And I think it's like when I thought of it the other week, like it was like I think I'm exactly right. So I'm going to I'm going to run this by you. I think this movie's a little long, and I think where it's long is it takes a long time for the main plot to start and what i mean by that is like the is by the time jonathan shows up which is the real threat of this movie right it's like it's like 35 minutes almost like by the time he shows up yes yeah that's right so where the longness in the beginning of this movie is is actually all the shit surrounding um uh What's her name? Uh, Elaine. Elaine, right. There's all shit at the beginning of them maybe getting married. There's like conversations with her like before, like, you know, he finds about, about the ants. Like there, there's too much Elaine is what's happening. here. Like there's just a lot of time wasted on this idea that he's this guy who wrote this fucking book like that's anti-marriage, but he's going to get married and blah, blah. Like, like, first of all, that makes him unlikable to me. Like, like at the start is like he's this like bachelor and he's like basically almost like leading this girl on to some degree like I, I don't understand that plot line and why it has to exist like so here like for so there's that issue and then I would also a small complaint would be that the insanity in the family thing doesn't come until too late into the movie so here's my radical like maybe sacrilegious rewrite of this movie is that you start with the opening scene with them getting ready to get married and he doesn't want to do it. He backs out of it. And the reason is because he's actually concerned about the insanity in his family at that point. It has nothing to do with this damn bachelor shit or anything like that. Like it's because he's concerned that like for her future because his insanity runs in his family. You establish that right away. It makes him sympathetic. It makes him a good, like a good guy. Like he's actually looking out for her. You, you, and then at that time, you can cut a lot of this Elaine shit out because now she doesn't matter. She doesn't matter through the whole movie. She's completely pointless, Elaine. Like in this movie, when you stop and think about it. It's a plot device. Right. Like, but they spend too much time on her for a plot device. So she gets like almost like 16 minutes of screen time or something like that for a plot device. So it's like, deal with her in the beginning and bookend around her, right? So it's like, you know, like she can come in a couple of times, like here and there, like, you know, and run away because he's being crazy or whatever. Um, but it's like, he's worried about her, doesn't want to get married because insanity runs in his family. He's worried what he's going to turn into. That makes him a sympathetic character rather than an asshole bachelor who doesn't want to get married because he's the famous author of this book and blah, blah. So now he's concerned about her. You cut down a lot of that, trim that middle down. You probably get this movie down, cutting her out to about an hour and 40 minutes um, as opposed to the running time there. It becomes tighter at that point. And now, it, like, rather than showing up later, this idea that the insanity runs in the family, now it's there from the beginning. And then it actually pays off at the end when he finds out that he's not related to him that much better because that's another thing that's kind of bookending the entire movie at this point. 
So I think like by doing that, you make him slightly more likable and you actually bookend the movie around two different ideas, like extremely well by making these like just small minor tweaks. Because um, I actually think he's unlikable in the beginning of that movie. And because I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a guy in the 1940s. None of them are likable. They're all fucking pads that have to be like humanized by some woman. Yeah. If, I, was rem- if I remade this movie today, that's what I would do, and he'd be likable. Well, go go have at it, I guess. I don't know what to tell you. Who would play him now? I don't know. Who? Mortimer? Yeah. Oh. I don't know. Who who would play him? You're rewriting the movie. I, I got nothing to do with this remake. I don't approve of it at all. So you you gotta cast it. How does the bachelor thing make any sense in this movie? Why is it there? How does it serve plot or character in this movie functionally? How does anything serve it? It's just it's the setup to the joke. Actually, everything actually pretty much everything like makes sense in this movie and serves a function except for that aspect of it. I would love to know. I need to read the original play because I know Capra like always has like anti-marriage in his movies. Like all the time. I wonder if it's something Capra forced into it. (sighs) Well, it's available on Amazon. So So our good friend, our good friend uh, Dave Kerr. I mean, didn't he just sit on it enough? Don't we, do we need to hear another sitting on it? No, um, somebody's getting upset over me just like criticizing basically one aspect of the entire thing. It's the same exact plot in the play. Is it? Yes. I'd be really interested to see what that like 50s version does if it cuts down to like an hour and a half. That'd be, I have no idea what they, what they would cut then. They'd have to butcher something if they cut it down that much. Because there's a few minor changes in the film version, so it doesn't say what they are. Interesting. I don't know if I want to read Dave Kerr to you now. I don't want to hear it. I mean, Dave, I, it's it's. Dave Kerr doesn't like this movie. It's one of the things you just have to accept about movies from this time period, which is the fact that men are dumb, they're headstrong, and they just do whatever they want. They don't make good decisions, and they're full of contradictions, and it takes the love of like a gentle woman to bring them around. Basically, I mean, it's, it's dumb. Like, it's all dumb. Like, it's very antiquated and very sexist. And I think that's the whole thing is that he's supposed to be the symbol of like whatever, like non-traditionalism when in reality like his whole concern is based on the traditions of like he wants to be here. Right. Right. So it's it's an element of uncertainty there. And then you add the uncertainty of him thinking that he might be insane. 
So it makes it more believable that he would just like dip on this woman that he's in love with because he's got all these reasons like talking himself out of the idea of going through with it. Okay. I Plus can, it I can see let that you have the joke of, you know, I mean, it's just a, just a setup for a couple jokes. And then the fact that they were going to kind of run away together and get married lets the whole thing with the cabbie like be there. Right. Whereas if the if if you're starting with the idea that he's doesn't want to go through it, then I mean the idea is he does want to go through with it, and then he's talking himself out of it, like mm-hmm. he's almost talking himself into being the character that he's fictitiously portraying in this book by like convincing himself that he's going to have he's going to go crazy someday like the rest of his family has, mm-hmm. and so that way when when you find out that he's the son of a sea cook or whatever the fuck, like he's able to just kind of ditch that persona and just, you know, go through with the thing that he wants to go through with, which is marry this woman. Right. And then you get the funny line at the end of what, whatever the cabbie says, I'm a teapot or whatever. Right. I'm the son of a sea cook, charge, and I'm a teapot. I'm not a cabbie, I'm a tea, tea kettle or whatever. Right. It's charming, right? Like, you should be charmed by that. I am. Hmm. Everything, everything I just said, all that stuff stays. Nothing would change. It would only be the first like ten minutes. It's only a hundred. It's only like two hours long. It's not even a long movie. Very much longer movies. <laughs> I think it's fine. I like everything about this movie. Yeah, I just think that the first fifteen minutes you could just tweak and it would be fine. Like, and you'd actually happens. you'd actually just improve it just a little bit, just a little bit. I don't. I don't think it improves it. I don't think it changes mm-hmm. anything. If your end result is the same thing, what does it matter? What do you improve? You got to rebook the Char- you know. charm, charm and likability of the main character. Again, like you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. Like this isn't. This is how they looked at men in the 1940s. They got to lack charm in order for you to charm, like become charming later. I mean. Sure. I would say that that's also how they still look at men in times nowadays. I mean, Ray Romano. I mean, here's the guy that's supposed to be this breadwinner, and he's a mess. Right. Sure. Like, that's That's what I'm saying. I don't think that, I don't think, and it's funny because I used to think that was like a thing, like, that, like, we actually went back to that. Like, when you think about it, because it's like that's what the nineties are in the early two thousands. Right. You know, and I always like equated that with Homer Homer Simpson, like, you know, and like that change of the sitcom male, like where like, you know, like they're all kind of dolts and the woman has to like, you know, be the thing that like, you know, um kind of like grounds them and brings them back to earth, you know, make decisions for them. So that's how you end up with Ray Romano and Tim Allen and Kevin James and et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but like after this, like men actually grow strength, right? Like after this movie, like in the fifties, I mean. Kind of, but it still is the idea that the woman is the one that's like they're missing piece or whatever. Yeah, I guess. Like really. Yeah, I mean, De- Desi still loves Lucy, even though Lucy's, Lucy's a fuck up. But Desi's like the the strong one there. Like he's the one that's in charge. He knows what's going on. He's this. He's the one that fixes everything. 
That's true. But is that a, I don't know if that's an outlier or not. I don't know. This is why I don't like comedy. <laughs> you like some comedy. Very little. You like, really like... you like Arrested Development. Yeah. I like sitcoms more than I like comedic movies. Movies, right? Yeah. Yeah, we've had this conversation when we talked about what romantic comedies and uh what was it? Fish out of water comedies. Oh right. I'm sure I force some comedy shit on me. Three times out of like ninety. Actually, episodes. this was a this was a, this was a randomly generated. No, that's the universe trying to do it. Mm. They want you to watch comedy. Maybe they think you need to watch comedies, Frank. I don't know shit. <laughs> Maybe I they watch... think you need a little levity in your life. No, I watch what I want to watch. I watch some things that are funny. I don't know the last thing I watched on my own that was a comedy. There's got to be something. I can't bring myself to watch Borat. No, I can't do that. I never watched the first one. Like, there's something about... I turned... I I, I hate the Ali G stuff. Yeah. So, like, I never, like, got into the Borat stuff, even though I know, like, we know people that, like, really like that. Like, I just couldn't do it. Like, I've seen clips. There's there's some funny stuff in, in the original Borat movie. Um, a lot the the stuff that's funny is the stuff that's scripted more than anything. Mm-hmm. The stuff where it's like some poor person, like poor schlub on the street, just getting accosted by Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, that stuff just makes me more uncomfortable than anything else. Right. Well, I can't watch fucking uh, what's it called? Curb your enthusiasm. It's just too it makes much. Makes you uncomfortable. Oh yeah, it's too much. Mm. It makes my skin crawl. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't bother me. Curve it, at least. Like, um, God, you know my least favorite episode of Curve, like the one that I like that ruined that whole show. Oh, the the water, water bottle in the pants? Yeah. 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 The little girl in the bathroom? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Running out to thank him and he has the water down, bottle down his pants because the for the itch, yeah. Uh huh. I remember. Well, because they're not letting him bring his own water into the brink. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Oh, is that what's happening? But it, no, I thought it was like he had an itch or something. Oh no, he had an itch because didn't he put no, the it's dolls? Outside food or drink? Because oh, does, doesn't it? Co- is that what it is? It comes together. Because remember, didn't he had like the dolls? Yes, the dolls' like, hair was yeah, it was like causing an itch. Things. So it's like. He couldn't bring in food or drink, so like he sat there and like looked and was like realized he could saw like kill two birds with one stone and puts the water bottle down his pants. <laughs> What's the line the little girl says? Is it like daddy daddy? There's like Mom, something Mommy? there's a man. Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, something like there's a man with something hard in his pants or something. Oh, he, mommy, he, mommy, mommy, he's got something hard in his pants. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, tries, I, yeah. I get you. It's it is one of those cringe things that like it makes you so uncomfortable. But yeah, I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> Plus, I was always um, is her name Cheryl Hines? Is that right? Yeah, I was just always in love with Cheryl Hines, and I never <laughs> understood like how she was with Larry. Like, Larry David could fuck that up. Yeah. Like, you got her. Like, just 
don't be an idiot. Right. But there he is, just being an idiot all the time. I don't Very annoying. What is it? Wide mouth, floppy hair. Yeah, googly eyes. Googly eyes, yeah. Uncertain yeah. gait. Her, her gait's pretty certain. Her gait, yeah, it's pretty certain, yeah. But other Everything than that, else. yeah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. All right, so that's our list for the night. It's the first time I made Frank angry in a while. Um, yeah. I don't think he really listened to me. I think you turned, I, I think, I think you're part of the problem. I think that, like, you're not, you didn't actually listen to what I was saying. I heard what you're saying. You said, so here, I'll repeat it back to you. Okay. Uh-huh. You said that if you change the direction of the plot so that his concern is the insanity in his family. Right. And you take out the whole, like, he-man women haters club aspect of it. Right. Where it's just like, he doesn't know if he wants to marry this woman because he's afraid that he's insane. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is how is that introduced? That's the whole, see, this is why you're fucking wrong. Because they introduced that plot point with him finding the dead bodies. Like, he thinks that Teddy is eccentric. He doesn't think anybody's insane. But then his brother's a murderer, his aunts are murderers, his uncle's fucking a lunatic. Like, that's what causes him to, like, start to all of a sudden think, like, oh, my God. Like, my family is degenerate, and I can't pass this along. So you have to have that set up to get to that point. So hold on a second. That's when he decides is only after that that insanity runs in his family? That's when it's like presented him in such a stark stark way that you have to build to that point. He already knows his his brother there's something wrong with him. So it's both both He knows that, and and he knows that Uncle Teddy is eccentric. eccentric. But it's like you can deal with eccentricities, but then there's like multiple people murdering people. Isn't eccentricity and, like a euphemism that's being used in that movie though? Like he knows Teddy's not right. Right. But he thinks that Teddy should also be committed. Right. Like he doesn't agree with his aunts allowing him to, you know, right. kind of run free in the house right. and sure. build the Panama Canal in the basement. <laughs> right. Right. But it's the stark reality of seeing like the fact that they're u- they're using his insanity to further their own insanity. And that's when he's like, Oh my god, like I have right. no I have no hope. Right. Son of a sea cook. Right. You didn't make me angry, you're just wrong. And you made me angry. I made you angry because I criticized one element of your top 50 movie. Like <clears throat> I said it might be top 50. Let's not go crazy. But it probably is in the top 50. Right. Uh, yeah. All right. So uh, Jimmy Custis. Yes. Saturday. PM. I am too. Um I have a lot of questions for him. If you're yeah. listening, Custis, be ready. <laughs> Um, yeah, we got that and um and a couple um interesting movies to talk about. So um and we will be back uh, this week with the quick cage, correct? Yeah, this week's quick cage is a um request by a I would I'm not gonna say friend of the podcast because I don't think this person's ever listened to a podcast, but right. they're aware it exists and they requested a specific movie. So um Okay. We'll do it. Okay. 
We have a Maybe lot of, listen to we one have a episode. lot of, we, all right. I, I, I was thinking about it the other day, like, uh, how we have a lot of friends that aren't friends of the podcast. <laughs> right. They're all a bunch of turds. It's like, you can't give up a couple hours. Oh, yeah, you can listen to the whole thing. Yeah, you have to listen to every episode. It's like, listen to a episode. Right, listen to like a third of the episodes. That's fine. Find one movie you like and listen to it. So you can sit there and say like, oh, yeah, I'll listen to this. And I thought, yeah. Right, it's like we follow some like complicated format. Just skip to the one you want to listen to. And... Right, yeah. No, it's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty... Uh, formulaic yeah. way that we do these episodes except for the quick cage which just goes all over the place quickly and it's true. regularly it's because I don't usually care about any of those movies so it's easy to talk about them yeah it is a trend that it's like if it's a movie that you like it's like you end up talking about it for like 10 straight minutes um, before like and then we still continue to talk about it for probably like another five to six minutes. And then we talk about nonsense um, right. where it's like nonsense, like starts like right away. It's like, you know, like, oh, this person, look at this supporting actor in this movie. Like, what do you think of them? <laughs> right. Like if, 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 a pie, if a quick cage starts with like, listen, this movie's nonsense or this movie's like fucking trash. Like, then, right. you know, you know, yeah, yeah. It's just going to be random non sequitur shit. Right. Yeah. Or like if I'm so focused on the idea that the song that they played, like I heard that song in a bunch <laughs> of shit, and then I did research of how many times right, I, right. I heard that song in a commercial or a trailer in sure. And I care about that more than I care about the movie itself. Right. Which yeah. that movie in all fairness crash. So So yeah, so okay, we've got a special quick cage this week for first ever request for a quick cage so that's um something um special quick that, cage episode yeah last week i had to put a warning on it i put a warning on the left behind episode why and i was like if you're a fan of <laughs> like anything left behind you probably do not want to listen to this episode and maybe even this podcast in general <laughs> Just because, like anybody that is a big fan of Left Behind, is not going to Listen, appreciate anything that was said in that podcast. I'm gonna say something controversial for a second. Oh shit! If you're a fan of the Left Behind series, yeah, you're probably listening to the fucking hits of the '40s on CD that you bought at the Cracker Barrel. Uh huh. You're not listening to a podcast, so I don't think that we're running the risk. Not that I can eat it anymore, but um, Cracker Barrel does have good biscuits and gravy. Yeah, I, I've been in the mood for some Cracker Barrel recently. Like maybe um, post quarantine, I'll treat myself to some uh, motherfucking eggs in a basket, or mm. I don't know, chicken and dumplings. Actually, it's. The Cracker Barrel sampler plate is the one that I like, where you get the meatloaf, the ham, and the chicken and nothing. Yeah, I don't care. I was just trying to save us for potential that maybe someday we can get a Cracker Barrel sponsorship. I mean, it's shit on I Cracker, love Cracker Barrel. Barrel. Oh, I, just, okay. I don't want to buy the Willie Nelson's Greatest Hits on E-Track, you know, that they sell at the bean counter next to the... Uh, okay, I took it as being that, like, the person who... Um, I got you now. I took it as being the person... No, I'm just saying that's their form of entertainment. Like, that's yeah, the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like like Garrison Keeler 
um, archives or something. I don't know. Right. That's okay. a person, right? Did I make him up? <laughs> no, you're you're correct. Karis Keeler is okay. a person, and it, it contextually it makes sense. Yes. It he felt is. Like Garrison Keeler was um what the what is that not NPR um yeah something uh, like it is that is that right it's what, it might be NPR it was some like public Prairie Home Companion is what he does yeah Prairie yeah. Home Companion yeah but is that NPR I don't know it's some free radio um Minnesota Public Radio oh, or yeah uh huh Minnesota Public Radio and it was NPR yeah. Amazon monster. <laughs> All right. All right. He got he he got canceled. Harrison Keeler? Yep. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. I never I listened know. to a single thing that man did, but I mean I assume that people liked him. There 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 is some kind of thing where some kind of sexual assault thing, like yeah. I don't of think course it, it was. It wasn't assault so much as um well, yeah, it's assault, I guess. Um, I always yeah. assumed Garrison Keillor was basically the real life version of um, Garrison Keillor. No, uh, <laughs> Jack Handy. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so that one bites the dust with him. Yep. All right. All right. Have a good night, everybody. See you next yep. week with uh, the body swap episode with uh, good evening. Jimmy Custis.